So just um, by way of introduction, we've been doing Mark, going through Mark. And uh, uh, right toward the end of last year, I did a message on the Sabbath. There was a bit of an interchange at the back end of uh, Mark 2 between the Pharisees and Jesus in terms of what he was doing on the Sabbath. They weren't particularly happy with him. And uh, which makes, I mean, that's good news that we don't follow Pharisees. It's much better to follow Jesus when you read these interchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees. But um, then at the start of chapter uh, 3, um, it, the Sabbath issue comes up again in, uh, uh, in concert with the uh, Pharisees. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on the screen um, now the, uh, just two passages that I want us to contrast. And I want you guys to do a little bit of work today. All right, so I want you to think about it. Last service, man, those guys did really well uh, with this, and I'm sure, I'm sure you will too, no pressure. <laughs> the first time that the Sabbath kind of shows up is actually in Genesis uh, 2, pretty much, in verse 1 to 3. Just notice this, I'll read through it. Thus the heavens and the earth, so we just finished hearing about how God created everything. Uh, thus the he- and that makes a lot more sense than evolution, by the way. Uh, that something intelligent actually created everything. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God... What's that word? Finished. All right? Just note here, the author wants you to get the fact that God's not doing work. All right? So he says, God finished his work that he had done and he rested. That's two times he's told you on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested. You get the idea? He's done. He's finished. He's at rest uh, from all his work that he had done in creation. Mark 3 verse 1 to 6. Here's the contrasting passage. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. This is probably at Capernaum. They've literally found the synagogue at Capernaum. Archaeologically, it's there. Uh, It's a real place. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Here's the deal. There were rules that the Pharisees had about what you could and you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Okay? If it was life-threatening, you could actually go and get medical help, that kind of stuff. This dude had a withered hand. All right? Luke tells us that it was his right hand. Um, and so they're watching him because Jesus is in a place where he's either going to comply with the rules or he's going to break the rules. So what will he do? Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So he's, that's, he's basically talking about that rule. And if you go back to Mark chapter 2, what actually happens in Mark chapter 2 is all the sick and the invalids get brought to Jesus, but it specifically says that it happens after sundown on the Sabbath. Why? Because it wasn't life-threatening and you weren't supposed to deal with anything on the Sabbath that wasn't life-threatening. Uh, that was kind of the rule. Um, and so Jesus asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. That's it. So he's just gone. That's it. And we'll get to this a bit later on, but well, that's, that's intense, right? Because the religious guys are going to get really upset about that. <laughs> all right um, stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him so clearly it's okay to plan to destroy God on the Sabbath but not to heal a guy's hand do you get that it's weird it's okay to plot the murder of someone on the Sabbath but you can't heal anyone you're not allowed to do that 
Anyway, we'll get, get to more of that later. Let's get to this here. So what I want, want you to do is look at those two scriptures and let's see if we can find all the similarities that we can think of and all the differences, all right? And just think, I mean, just as broadly as you'd like and as detailed as you'd like. So what, obviously on the one side, we've got the original Sabbath. On this side, we've got another Sabbath. What's different between these two Sabbaths? Well, sorry, what's similar and what's different? Let's start with the similarities. What's similar? Sorry, they were both the Sabbath. Excellent, good. What else? Is that the only thing that's similar? Just go as basic as you like. God's what? God's present. Yeah, excellent. Good. God's here. What else? God rested in Genesis. Yeah. And the law says that God rested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can put that down, yeah. What else? Who else is there? God's here. Who else is here? Yeah, his creation. People are there. Okay. What else? Yeah, actually, before we go on, that's more amazing than what you'd think. Now, maybe not the one on the left but the one on the right god who is powerful creating righteous holy god who burns against evil and sin is in a place where people are plotting to kill him you get that it's like would you hang out with someone who's trying to kill you (laughs) would you no no you wouldn't right it's like i'm not going to be there well what's he doing there well he's he's up to something there isn't he (laughs) <laughs> God's blessings in both of them. Like the one he blessed the Sabbath and the other he blessed a person. Absolutely, yeah, put that down. That's really interesting, right? Because on that note, I mean, what's happened in when there's this concept of shalom, um, this biblical concept of shalom, which is really restoration. Shalom is like a wholeness and a peace. It's not just a an absence of conflict, but it's actually a wholeness. It's like everything is the way that it's meant to be. So in a sense, there's shalom on the left, isn't there, in Genesis? But on the right, well, what's Jesus doing? Well, he's actually moving towards shalom. Does it make sense? He's, he's rebuilding it. So there's kind of, sh- you know, because a man's hand didn't work. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He brings it with him. He creates it, yeah, in both cases, yeah. Anything else? Anyone notice anything else? Yeah, keep going. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. It's good, yeah. There's a sense of God's holiness in it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, two miracles, the creation of, of earth and the creation of wholeness or healing. Yeah. Never miracles. Is that right? That's good. Is it? Yeah. I know, and I have a problem with that one. You know why I asked you to do that? Because there's no such thing as a whiteboard spell checker. That's why I get the English teacher to do it. 
Uh, what about differences? Let's have a swing at differences. What do you think are the differences uh, between these two Sabbaths? Excellent. There's sin in one and there's not sin in the other one. What else? The purpose of the Sabbath has been lost. In one it was created for, yep. for rest and for enjoying God. In the second one it's become just a, a law. Yeah. 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 So um, yep. Yep. Oh, that's good. Uh, one commentator uh, made this comment, which is what they do. They're very good at comment- commentating because they're commentators. But they said there's two things in distress in the picture in Mark. One of them is the law's in distress and the other one is that there's a man in distress. And Jesus actually comes and he deals with the distress of the law and the distress of the man uh, in one fell swoop, so to speak. Um, all right, what else? Yeah, Jesus is angry in the second and God's not angry in the first one, yeah. What else? Yeah, it's good. First one... Uh, is all about life and God's creation of life. The second one's kind of ending up in death at some level. Not so much what Jesus is doing, but what they're doing with what he's doing. Yeah. What, what else? Tell me, tell me, contrast for me what God's doing. If Jesus is God, what's, what's the contrast between what God's doing? Yeah, he is. So the first one is not working, but the second one is working. So let me ask you, why, did, why, what, why is he working in the second one? Yeah, so he's got the reality of sin and evil in the world and he's working. So if you, you might remember from last year when uh, I shared about the Sabbath that is it, there's a break in the pattern. Like if you look at the other days of creation, at the end of it, it always says there was evening, there was morning, the first day, the second day, third day, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then it gets to the seventh and there's no pattern at the end of that like you would expect in the other six. And it almost looked like God's kind of saying, look, the way that this was meant to be is when everything was finished, I was meant to stay at rest. But because of sin and people turning on God, what happens? Well, God is at work now. And he's always at work. So, what else? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They're messing with it, aren't they? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And in the second one, the guy even who's healed is resting in the power of God, yep. irrespective. But yep. yeah. uh, that's good. So how did you phrase that again? Mm. There's a sense, isn't there, like a, a creation in the left one's finished, but now it's not. Like it's unfinished all of a sudden. Um, sorry? Yeah, there's a groaning in creation. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Anything else? Any other differences you see there? Yeah, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, real division there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, murder probably indicates something like that. <laughs> That's right. It's like if your kids want to kill each other at home, it's you know, unity's not going so well, is it? Yeah. I mean, just to throw another one in from me. Like when I was thinking about it, I just thought on the left there, like in Genesis, is there's almost a sense of kingly rest, isn't there, from God? It's, um, it's not laziness, it's like the king's got everything set up the way that he wants it to be and he can just relax. Yeah. Uh, and then on the right, what have you got? Well, you've got people lying in wait to ambush God and his kingly authority, haven't you? They're really wanting to overthrow the king. That's what they're wanting to do and accuse him. Mm. Yeah. Which makes it even, I mean, all the more amazing that God's happy to hang out there, isn't it? Like, well, what would you want to be there for? But his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not ours. So what does he do? He goes to places where he probably wouldn't. And he's there and he's doing something. Actually, I love that when um, Jesus on the cross and says, it is finished, mm. because he's enabled yeah. us to come back to yeah. that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you guys would, most of you would know your Bible pretty well. You know, that's the trajectory that it's all on. What does God want to do? Well, he wants to get it back to where it was in Genesis 2. And that will happen. That will happen one day. We just live in the in-between zone where that's coming about rather than has come about. Anything else? You guys did well. Cool. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. So let me ask you this question. Um, what makes God's work harder? So here he is, <laughs> us. In this particular situation in, Genesis, in Mark 3, I should say, what actually makes it harder for him? Because he's actually on that trajectory I was just talking about where he's bringing things to wholeness and complete, completeness. Anyone know? Yeah. And in this particular case, you know what it is? It's legalism. It's, it's God's... Like, who would get in the way of a dude getting his arm fixed? You know, who would get in the way of that kind of restoration and wholeness and shalom? But yet that is what legalism does. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look, yeah. The issue is never the issue. The issue is always control. Yeah. They were about to lose power as well yeah. and hand it over back to God. He yeah. was supposed to be yeah. empowered to win the first time. Absolutely. So let me give you some definitions for legalism. Now, there's heaps on here, and I'll tell you the one I like the best, but I've just put heaps on there so that, because one of them might resonate with you a little bit better than the other ones. Here's the first one. Legalism is actually living out of devotion to the law, not out of love for God and people. Okay? It's kind of... You've heard... Some of you might have heard me talk about neatniks, right? It's being a neatnik when it comes to faith and, and religion kind of stuff, all right? It's about adding to God's words... It's actually about earning and achieving versus resting. Listen to this. This is a Ned Welshism. He says, legalism is about earning and achieving versus resting in the sufficient and lopsided grace of God. I love that. Lopsided grace of God. This is, the next one's probably my favourite one in terms of the way that I understand it and resonates with me. It's like we're equal partners with God where we each make a contribution. That's what legalism is. It's like that prayer that you pray and you think God's going to be impressed with it. I mean, I'm persuaded that um, there exists a form of karma that's Christian karma, all right? 
what's karma? Karma is where you do something good and you'll be repaid for it. You know, and sometimes people do stuff, and a lot of times Christians can do stuff, and they just think, if I just do this, or if I say the right fancy words, then God will like me and good things will happen for me. So, I mean, you don't have to answer, but it's, you know, I could ask you something like, and I will ask you, um, have you ever prayed and said words that you thought God might be impressed by? <laughs> well, you didn't have to answer, Carl. Come on. <laughs> That's, see, yeah. Yeah, so there's a classic formula that was um, that gets thrown around in evangelicalism, and it's mostly helpful. Um, except while I was preparing this for this message, I realised no, we've actually that's not quite right. It used to be this. It used to be that people would say Jesus plus something equals nothing. Has anyone ever heard that formula before? So if you take Jesus and you add something to Jesus, you end up with nothing. All right. What's and, and I'd, that's generally true, except in reality, the way that it ends up is when you take Jesus and you add something to it, what you end up is with sorry, what you end up with is the something without Jesus. So if it's Jesus plus I have to do a quiet time, it's going to end up being about my quiet time. If it's Jesus plus I need to pray enough or I need to help people to come to know Jesus, what will end up being is just I need to help people to come to know Jesus and I need to pray enough. Does that make sense? So the first formula is kind of correct, but in terms of the way that humans experience it, I think that's the way it tends to end up. But salvation by faith, being changed and saved by faith and believing in God is this one. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's what the boys didn't get in Mark chapter 3. The uh, fathers of the Protestant Reformation had a, um, a Latin phrase, I think it was, called sola scriptura. And what sola scriptura meant, and it's actually part of our um, statement of faith at the project here, is that scripture is the final and the highest authority. Um, but you know what? People who are legalists think that you need to add to God and what he said. So they add other authorities like books and teachers and rules and leaders and they say they're not just under scripture but they're equal to it that's what legalists actually do um, they, they elevate lists and rules and books and make them equal to scripture and you see at the end of the day what actually happens for legalists is that they end up in a place where they're kind of saying scripture's not quite sufficient i have to add something to it to make it work properly and it's not that they want to have a book or a teacher or a list of something that helps you to understand the Bible, that, that thing actually becomes elevated up uh, in authority next to the Bible, in equal authority to the Bible, and that's where it becomes really problematic. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6 says, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Don't add to his stuff. And that's what legalism does. It adds stuff to what God said. And it's kind of like, have you ever seen someone or done it yourself where you have the paint by numbers paintings and you get the little pots of glue out and they've all got a number on it and the painting's got um, a line drawing on it and it's got different numbers and you just know if you put the red one, if the red's number six, you've got to paint number six red. That's kind of what legalism is. It's like you end up painting by numbers, all right? And everyone's painting kind of ends up looking the same and they kind of get all Nazi about the rules and the things that people need to do to kind of be good enough and they say things like eat this do this pray this read this do that tie this 
and they're okay. Legalists are okay as long as people are doing and following the rules. It doesn't matter if their heart's passionless. It doesn't matter if their relationship is null and void with God. They're obedient to the Lord and it's good. But you know what? God wants more from you than a paint-by-numbers walk with him. Amen? Yeah, it's good. So what does God want from you? Do you know what he wants? He wants a living, active, vibrant, conversant, prayerful, discerning, spirit-filled, spirit-led, living, loving, life-giving relationship with you. That's what he wants. Does that sound better? It's not neat, neat, paint by numbers. This is like he wants something really vital, uh, a vital connection with you. And you know what legalists do? They take fun out of stuff, all right? I mean, the amount of controversy there's been about the Sabbath day is ridiculous. Isn't it? God kind of stands up and says, listen, I took a rest on the seventh day. Why don't you just have a day off? Like, isn't that a good thing? And everyone's going, oh, we can't do that. Well, why not? Like, just have a day off. He's kind of going, well, you don't need to do anything. You just go, well, we're going to have to put some rules in for that, that baby. All right? We're not going to be able to... It's kind of like birthday cake, right? Do you need rules about birthday cake? No, you don't. What do you do? You just eat it, don't you? Like if someone comes along and goes, right, here's the thing. There's birthday cake rules. It can't be chocolate. It must be vanilla. You're not allowed to eat it with your hands. And you're only allowed to eat birthday cake on Mondays, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Not on the other days of the week. Like you don't... Do you get what I'm saying? Like birthday cake's just a good thing, isn't it? It doesn't actually need rules. And it's kind of like that with the Sabbath. It's like, have a day off. Just go, well, we're going to need rules. No, you don't need rules. Just have the day off. Just relax. Get into it. You know, I mean, the thing with the birthday cake, it's like, don't tell me how to eat a birthday cake. I'm just going to stuff it in my face. You know, I think one of my boy's first birthday cakes, it's a sign of how much you've enjoyed it by how much is on your face rather than in your face. Does that make sense? That's the deal with birthday cakes. But that's what happens with legalists is they take the fun out of stuff. So today what we're going to look at is three things. We're going to look at the power of legalism, the nature of legalism and the antidote to legalism. First one is this, the power of legalism. Legalism is powerful because you know what? It's really hard to see. Because no one ever comes... Have you ever noticed this in a church? Who's ever come up to you and repented and said, Brother, brother, I just, I'm such a legalist. I need your help. Please help me. I need to repent and turn and I'm bummed out. Like, that doesn't happen, Right? That's gone up there in my books with covetousness, right? You would think in the West that there'd be someone repenting of covetousness in small groups, but it doesn't seem to happen very often, all right? But here's legalism. It's really hard to see, and people who are legalists find it really hard to see that they're actually being legalists. Um, It's a bit... One of the experiences I had as a school teacher, and one thing that school teachers often say is the parents that come to parent-teacher interviews are never the ones that you need to see. (laughs) You know, and it's a bit like that with legalism. It's kind of like the people who are legalists who are probably listening to me this morning probably don't think they need to hear it. It's just a weird irony. It's hard to see. The Pharisees don't see what they're up to. Why is legalism so hard to see? Let me give you a few suggestions. One possibility is that legalism doesn't seem to have any overtly bad consequences. Like if you do drugs... You know, and even if you do birthday cakes, you know, three meals a day, you're going to get fat and there's going to be some bad consequences and you might die young, all right? 
But stuff like that rarely befalls the legalist. Um, they seem to get through life kind of okay. Second thing, reason why I think legalism is hard to see is because it comes on the authority of God himself. So you talk to a legalist, what do they say? Well, God says this and he says that and he says I'm supposed to be doing this and I'm supposed to be doing that. I counselled a, um, a fella a while ago and um, he was like scared and almost terrified of God. And he was a very, very deep reader. Um, he was almost, I mean, he was, he was in his 20s and he'd almost read as much deep theology as, as I have. And I'm not even saying I've read that much, but I've read a fair bit of it. It just kind of surprised me. This guy knew a lot of stuff and he was really scared of, of God. And he could quote all of the scriptures to me about why the place that he was in was the right place for him to be in. That's why he was in such incredible danger. So the third thing is that um, legalism is hard to see because you can quote Bible passages about it. The fourth thing is that it comes on the authority of influential people in your ecclesiastical culture. All right, So you can find people to support your view um, of yourself and the world and the last couple are uh, a couple of reasons why it's hard to see legalism is because it has the authority of personal experience. People kind of live it out and it gives them some kind of authority. And the last one is, look, it's just a quieter sin at the end of the day. It's very quiet. I mean, if I absolutely lost my cool at the end of this and yelled at one of you, which is not going to happen, well, by the grace of God it won't happen, if... If I did that, everyone would go, whoa, there's a big sinner, all right? Because it's kind of a loud sin, all right? And if you, there's lots of stuff that you can get into that's kind of a loud sin. You kind of, you know, someone walks in today and they've just, you know, they've been out drinking all night and they're totally smashed and it's like, oh, okay, so they've got a bit of an issue with alcohol, that kind of stuff, and they'd be welcome here. We'd love to have them in here. But you just kind of notice it more. With legalism, you don't seem to notice it quite as much. It seems to be a bit quieter and it tends to go on for longer than it should because it's a quieter sin. Legalism is very hard to see. Legalism also makes you very bold. I mean, just think about it. What are the Pharisees doing? They're rebuking God. It's just, you know, I mean, who's going to do that on Judgment Day? You know, Jesus comes back and you just say, Jesus, can we just have five minutes? Is there a quiet spot? We can just have a chat here. And you're just going to sit down together and you say... Man, like seriously, there is some stuff that you really, you just didn't, you didn't know that at all. That just was not helpful and it was, you're not going to do it, right? See, the previous story about the Sabbath at the back end of Mark 2, you know what they're doing? They walk up to Jesus and they, because they and Jesus disagree, they assume he's the one that's wrong. That's what legalism does. It makes you that bold that you'd assume that he's wrong. And they're assuming here that... Um, that Jesus is wrong and that he shouldn't actually be healing this boy or this fella on the Sabbath. Legalism makes you arrogant. What are they doing? They're judging God. They're not just bold, they're actually judging God. And there's lots of people in the world that disagree with Jesus. And you know what they assume most of the time? They assume Jesus is wrong. But a good encouragement that I could give to you this morning is if you and Jesus disagree, the best thing for you to do is assume that you're wrong. All right? Assume that he's right, assume that you're wrong. You see, it's a really proud thing to say, well, that's just Jesus' opinion. (laughs) 
Who's he to know what should be right and wrong? Well, you know what? He's God. So your opinion probably doesn't count. Legalism makes you unloving. What's happening here? There's a guy that needs help and they're saying it shouldn't be happening. Now listen, I did this before. This is what, this is what Jesus did. That. That's it. Now seriously, it took them more energy to criticise Jesus than it was for the guy to go. Didn't it? And what do they do then? Well, they kick out the back and they just go, come on, let's get him. You know, and they're having this murder plot, trying to work out how they're going to get him. That's kind of what legalism does. It makes you unloving and you use lots of energy criticising things and not very much energy loving people. The nature of legalism. Legalism is a human creation. If you look across the world at all religions, do you know what you won't find? You won't find grace in world religions. You find legalistic structures in world religions. And you know what that tells you? That they're all made up. They're all made up. Because that's what humans do. Humans just, we just do legalism. We like the little rules. We like making our little contribution to things. I love this. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favourite photos. This is cool. Judaism, funny hat. Islam, funny hat. Hinduism, funny hat. Christianity, funny hat. And bacon. We have bacon. (laughs) (laughs) And you might say, you say, well, that's a really arrogant thing to say that everything else is made up and Christianity is not. Well, I hope that by the end of today's uh, message, you'll, you'll see that the nature of the grace that's offered in the Bible is so counter to what we expect and what we want to do that it can't just be something that someone's made up. That's the thing that's so incredibly unique uh, across the world. And the other thing, just to throw it in there, listen, we know the Bible was written over 1,500 years, over 40 generations by over 40 authors of differing positions in society. Now, I tell you, if you can orchestrate a Bible that fits together as well as the one that we've got, over that length of time, you're probably God. True? It's a very, very unique book. And the content itself is incredibly unique also. You see, world religions all operate on legalism. And that's what makes grace and God's kindness toward us even more amazing. I mean, you only have to go to Hinduism. What's one of the main things in Hinduism? It's karma. What's karma? If I do the right thing, good karma is going to happen to me. Or bad karma, if I do the wrong thing. You see, the whole idea of world religions is you have to do something to appease the God or the gods. John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols. And I would suggest to you this morning that the human heart is a factory of legalism also. It's created so many religions and systems. Um, On the 6th of February, um, news.com.au ran a story on a billboard that's at Homebush in Sydney. Have you escaped religion? We have. This is by the Sydney Atheists. Now, Christians in a church that understand the grace of God could answer that question, couldn't they? Have you escaped religion? Yeah, absolutely. Listen to what the head guy of Sydney Atheists actually said. He said, every religion has an agenda and those agendas are to control people. 
Most religions have an, an, an end goal and usually that involves power and money. Control, right? And isn't that the truth? Like when we get legalistic, what's it about? Well, I want to control my world. If I do this, then that has to happen. We want the mathematical formula version of life and relationship with God instead of the freedom of relationship in there. So what I want to do today is I want to help you to uh, locate legalism. I um, in, in your own life. I, I just be a bit of self-disclosure here. For years, I thought all the scriptures about legalism, religion, didn't have anything to do with me. It's, it's like genealogies. It's like I don't need to know that. So I'll just move on to the next bit. And I've since re- realised in the last uh, probably 12 months or so that I'm as legalistic and religious as the next bloke. And uh, I need to hear from God on that sort of stuff. Uh, if you're someone who's ever prayed more because you think God's going to be impressed or you prayed in public in a group because other people were going to be impressed, um, you're involved in legalism at some level there. Any time that you've thought that you're an equal partner with God and you make contributions... Uh, you're in danger. Uh, anytime you've fasted and you've done it, oh, God's got to do what I want him to do now because I've fasted. Anytime you think I haven't done enough, I need to sit down and read my Bible and pray or some people think unless I'm out there and there's other people that are being converted and coming to Jesus and I'm not doing a good enough job, you're kind of in that kind of zone, that legalist zone. So I want to give you seven varieties of legalists and um, see if there's any that fit you today. All right, and I'm indebted to um, to Ed Welsh for this. Uh, for most of these, he's uh, done some really good stuff on uh, legalists. And one of the comments that Ed Welsh actually makes is he talks about that whole thing about how people like to have the last word. You know that, and you see him in sitcoms and that sort of stuff. People have to have the last word in sitcoms. Well, you know, Ed Welsh says legalism is the spiritual version of needing to have the last word. I just want to add the last little bit on. I want to. I want to be a contributor. I want to kind of have a say right at the end. Here's the first one. The nice legalist. Do you know what the nice legalist is? The nice legalist is someone that says yes to everything. Pastors and parents love nice legalists. Okay? Because they do lots of stuff. They do lots of stuff in the church. They don't really cause that much of a fuss. They want to please their parents. They want to get the approval of other people. But they tend to be tired and burnt out, they tend to live with low-level anxieties for most of their lives. And for them, it becomes Jesus plus the approval of others equals the approval of others. That's the only thing that's left. The second one is the, uh, the striving legalist. This is Jesus plus my own obedience. They're willing to live with guilt and condemnation because it's part of the religion. They love accountability groups. All right. Yeah, it's really, this is really interesting. I've been in a lot of churches where um, there's been accountability groups and accountability is, is a concept that exists in the Bible and it's a good thing. But I'm not sure that the expression of accountability in accountability groups is always helpful. I think a lot of times it is. And I, I'm not even saying that the whole thing's a waste. I think there's always probably something good that comes out of it. But in my experience, accountability groups are either will beat you up because you didn't meet the mark Or, alternatively, yeah, I blew it too and then we all kind of give each other a cuddle while we sit in the cesspit of of the stuff that we've been doing. Um, That's kind of what it tends to be. Now, is there a kind of accountability that can head in a really healthy way? Yes, there is. And I think lots of people do it, but I think there's a couple of dangers there. But see, the striving legalist 
is into accountability. They're into it. They're into just working really, really hard, right? And they're the kind of people that would repent of poor repentance, all right? But they, they say sorry, they do something that's uh, wrong, they apologise to God for it, and then they kind of go away and reflectively they go, yeah, I didn't get that right. So they go back and they do it again. They say sorry again. Um, it's kind of like the layers of an onion. Like, where does it end? When do they stop doing it? And it can end up in a place of real paralysis um, for people. And there's a, actually a secular psychological term that's actually used for something that's very like this, and it's called scrupulosity. People are so scrupulous about what's going on in their lives, they don't actually move anywhere. And for them, it's Jesus plus what I have to do. Um, and so I'll just ask you this morning, is there anything after the plus for you? If you look at the gospel, there's no... You're not in it. Like the actual, the gospel is uh, God's come, he's died on the cross to forgive your sins and it's like there's, you, you actually don't have a role in the actual, in what the gospel is. Your role kind of comes out of the gospel, not in the gospel. So that's your uh, striving legalist. Here's the next one, your deal-making legalist. Jesus plus, when I need it, I'll do some extra obedience, just a bit of a top-up, all right? Uh, if I do this, um, then God will probably do that. This is kind of like the people who just kind of go, yeah, I know Jesus loves me and I know I'm accepted, but I've just got to go out and if I'm not telling other people about Jesus, God's not happy with me and he's cranky with me. Um, there's something that you don't measure up to, so you need to keep doing it. Um, if, if I do this, then God will do this. That's kind of the deal-making legalist. You always kind of, there's some kind of deal going on between you and God all the time. Judges and punishes. Um, for these people, life is Jesus plus my own penance or paying back my own sin. So people have been known to literally physically hit themselves after they've blown it. Um, it's kind of people who are self-flagellating. Um, and it's just like, and sometimes people can do that just even with their words. When you're with someone, they can kind of say, oh, I'm such a loser, I'm so terrible, I did this. Or, and it's one thing to feel the sorrow of doing something dumb but you know the people I'm talking about, they just kind of go over the top and they keep going and going and going and kind of beating themselves up. And what it's actually doing is it's come, becoming part of their atonement strategy. It's their way of actually getting back into a right place from being in a, uh, in, in a bad place. And so they, um, they kind of are the judge, the jury and the uh, executioner in a sense. That's what they are in their own life. You know what the big problem with the uh, judges and punishers are is what is the penance for an abortion? You know, you, you get to some of those big ones and you just go, well, what's going to be enough? If you blow it, what will be enough to cover that? Then you've got your angry legalists. I've measured up to the law and I'm going to stand in judgment over you. You know anyone like that? It's like, yeah, I comply, you don't. And I'll just let you know about that. And I'm going to be really angry and I'm going to point that out in you whenever I see it. And the question for those kind of legalists is why would they even want to live under the law? And let me suggest this to you. Because if they believe that they're forgiven, then they need to forgive their father or their brother or their sister. If they actually realise and come to the point where they're under grace... And God's generous to them. That's going to put implications upon them about how they need to deal with their neighbours or their family or someone else who's offended them. And so it's easier 
to live under the law and to live in judgment over people than to live under grace and to be forgiven. Second last one, resign legalists. These are the people saying, I can't forgive myself. And their kind of faith becomes Jesus plus, I have to be able to forgive myself. And if they can't, you know what they do? Might as well blow it. I can't get back. I'm not going to be good enough to get back. And they move off into their sin. They kind of think, well, I'm going to be condemned anyway, so I might as well just get into it. Here's the last one. The thankful legalists. I'll ask you this question. How many places in the Bible can you think of where gratitude or thankfulness is explicitly made the motive of moral behaviour? I'll ask you again. How many places in the Bible can you think of where gratitude or thankfulness is explicitly made the motive of moral behaviour? Do you know what the answer is? None. If you go looking in the Bible for a verse that says you need to obey God because of how much he did for you, you, you just won't find it. And it becomes, what actually happens with this kind of legalist is it becomes kind of this. It's like I could never repay God. I'll never ever repay him back enough for what he's done for me, but at least I'm going to try. Now, there's probably a lot of these in the church. You know what's really interesting is if you look at the reasons in the Bible for obeying God, you know what they are? They're always attached to promises. Almost. I mean, I wouldn't say exclusively, but they're just about always attached to promises. So, um, the call to fast, what does it say? If you fast and you do it in private, what's going to happen? Your Father is going to reward you. And, and it's like that. Like, it's stunning. There's, uh, Randy Alcorn wrote a great book on uh, rewards and he just says, it's just absolutely stunning how many rewards God put, puts out in front of people. If you do this, I'll reward you. And it, it just doesn't quite, you kind of go, oh, I don't know about that. Well, but that's how it is. It's kind of like John Piper put it uh, really well. He said, uh, he says, how do you glorify a mountain spring? You glorify, you don't glorify a mountain spring by carrying a bucket of town water up and pouring it onto the spring, right? You glorify a mountain spring by getting down on your face and drinking deeply from it. That's what you do. And when you look at God and the promises that he makes and the call to be obedient, it's always this thing like, just get down and drink deeply from me. There's kind of a current that's kind of saying, get more in debt to me, not try and get yourself out of debt. Get more in debt to me. So those are the seven categories of legalism from this morning. So we come to this. What's the antidote to legalism? Well, we've covered uh, much of this already, but uh, to answer this question, we really need to, um, to look at some of the things that motivate legalism. Legalism, see, comes from self-exaltation, desire for power, love of status, reputation, people love standing in the limelight, showing off. You know what superstition is, according to the dictionary? It's a widely held but irrational belief in supernatural influences, especially as leading to good or bad luck. Now, I'll probably just suggest to you this morning gently, the Christians are probably more superstitious than what they think. 
You know, we just kind of do things. We just think, I, I think if I do that, it's going to end up well. I think if I do that, if I say the right words in a prayer. I mean, there was a whole period of time for me where I just stopped praying in a group. Because you know what happened to me is I realised I just I wasn't thinking about legalism at the time, but I was praying a speech and trying to impress people and probably even trying to impress God. Like, how dumb is that? Like, who's going to say, like, you start praying, oh, Jesus, we thank you for your justification, and you're kind of going, do you like that? <laughs> oh, thank you for your providence and your sovereignty and the blood of Jesus. Like, it's, it's really dumb, isn't it? But you can kind of get caught up in that on the inside. You just think, oh, I'm making a contribution. He must be really happy with it, and hopefully things will go well for me in the future. Legalism can come from, uh, from pride and suspicion too, this sense that we're the inner group. We don't like others who aren't like us. Well, what kills legalism? legalism? Legalism is killed by justification by faith. It's a beautiful, beautiful old doctrine of the, of the faith. And it comes at us really richly in Ephesians chapter 2. So I'm just going to read through Ephesians chapter 2. And you, you... You were what? All right, so you're not in ICU, okay? You're not on antibiotics, you don't have a drip in, there's no IV. Like you, you were dead, right? The only reason why dead people go to hospitals is to go to the morgue, okay? They don't go to get help from the doctor. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is an outwork in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. See that? You're dead. I'm reading the uh, Heidelberg Catechism at the moment, as you heard earlier, and it's got this whole chapter in it called Our Misery. And it's pretty miserable. Just covers all the state of humankind uh, spiritually, and you get. I think the point of it is you're gonna you get to the end of the section on misery and you're miserable. And it's like when you're miserable, then you're ready for the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And that's exactly what's going on here. I think in Ephesians, is Paul's going, look how miserable it was. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By what? By grace. You've been saved. And and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you notice even at the end there, this is on a bit of a side point, it doesn't say... God's going to rescue you and take you to be with him in heaven so that you can be thankful to him for all eternity and show how thankful you are. Do you see that? It doesn't say that. It says the reason why he's going to save you and take you to be in heaven is because he wants to show the immeasurable riches of his, of his grace in kindness toward us. So his gig is like, I want to get you to heaven because I want to be kind to you forever and just give you stuff all the time and look after you. So that you'll never ever be able to pay me back. It's like, I don't want you to come up and then show how thankful you are. I want you to come up so I can be generous and gracious toward you. And this is the kicker. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace 
you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God. Not a result of what? Works. Not a result of you kicking in your half. Not a result of striving. You see, you can't raise yourself from the dead. There's actually no works that you can do to earn this kind of salvation. It is only and ever a gift. It's a beautiful section in John 6, 25 to 29 that talks about what our works are. What are we supposed to do? Because Paul just said in Ephesians 2, he says, you can't do any works. There's nothing you can do to get it. And so some people come up to Jesus and kind of ask him, they say, what works do we need to do? Here's how it goes. When they, the crowd, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Listen to this. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, right? He just talked about work. Paul said in Ephesians 2, you don't work. What's Jesus talking about? Um, Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, listen to the underlying presuppositions, the belief system in underneath this question, right? What must we do to be doing the works of God? What do they believe? They believe they can actually do it. Like you just need to tell us, seriously, all we need, Jesus, it's a lovely day, sun shining, blue sky. Seriously, I had a good night's sleep last night. Just let me know, what is it? What is it that you want us to do? I'm just going to do it. What does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do you know what work God wants you to do? The only work God wants you to do is to rest in his work, which is not work. (laughs) That's your job, is to rest in his work. You see, the only question left really at this point in time is, why do people then live under the law? Why wouldn't you live under grace? And I want to suggest to you this morning that grace is not natural. To accept grace is not natural. You've ever been out to, someone's invited you over to their place for dinner and you've had the conversation with someone on the way home and you've just gone, we've never had them over for dinner. Do you think maybe we should do that sometime? Or they bought you a coffee and you just go, I've never bought them a coffee. Or they're one of those people who are like the gift givers. You know those people around that are like the gift givers and they kind of give you a gift for your birthday and they just go, oh, see, now I've got to give them a present. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying? See, I think that tends to be, in a fleshly kind of way, that tends to be what's more natural for us. Just, well, I've got to make a contribution, I've got to pay back. Because no one likes to be a charity case, do they? No one likes to receive an extravagant gift when our pockets are empty. But that's what grace is. That's what God's goodness is to us. And it's not necessarily natural. The beautiful thing about God is that he's made it more natural, hasn't he? And there's a lot of you here and you, you go toward him and you just go, I'm going to him because he is generous. He is good. He is wonderful. We have to be honest with ourselves sometimes and say our legalism, actually, we keep it because it serves us, doesn't it? We can maintain a bit of control or we can maintain a bit of respectability. We can be the people who aren't the charity case. Well, you know what? 
No one comes to Jesus who doesn't humble themselves and say they are a charity case. You know, we ought to, if you love Jesus this morning, if you don't love Jesus this morning, that's a step you need to go through. You just need to say, listen, I have nothing to offer and I just need. I need everything that God brings and I actually need someone like God who gives out of his abundance. And for those of you who are Christians, you revel in that and you learn to revel in it. You know, ever seen someone work a, you know, a biscuit into some carpet? Have you ever seen them drop a biscuit and they kind of get on it with the ball of their foot? And It's almost like the old cigarette butt, you know, they put it on the ground and you just kind of, you know, I think that grace needs to be worked in like that in the Christian community. You know, it's, that's why you need to be in relationship with each other because you need someone to go, hey, listen, brother, uh, just, hold on, I'll just drop a biscuit, you know, and then I'm just going to work a bit of grace into you right now because you, you just don't, don't sound like you're living in it. You know, and some of you would go, well, does that mean we can do whatever we want? Well, you only need to read the prodigal son to realise that's not the answer. What happened in the prodigal son? Well, you've got two ends of the spectrum in the prodigal son. You've got legalism of the older son. who did everything that his father wanted him to do. And at the other end, you've got licentiousness. You see, that doesn't understand grace either, does it? Legalism doesn't understand it and licence doesn't understand it either. Uh, you've heard me say before that walking with God's like holding a piece of wet soap, you know. When you don't think you've got it, you've probably got it. When you do think you've got it, you probably don't. The new covenant promises, the new deal that God's given us in Jesus, it's not dependent on your obedience. The Old Testament pro- promises came before the law and God still works that way. All obedience to him is not pre-liberation but post-liberation. You see, you don't have to work one day a week because God's working all the time. You just don't have to. And we see here in Mark 3 that Jesus delivers the man and the Sabbath, doesn't he? At this point in time. I read this quote from Luther, then I'm going to show you a quick clip and then we'll be done. Luther said this, he said that saving faith is, listen to this, a living, creative, active and powerful thing, this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done, but before anyone asks, it already has done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Do you see that? Luther's, he's not saying you've got to do good works with Jesus to be acceptable. He's saying the kind of faith that faith in Jesus creates, the kind of trust and belief that, that, that he's in saving faith there is such that you're just going to spontaneously start doing good stuff. Has anyone got a testimony of that, that that's actually happened in your life? Yeah, because you do. You just go, you know, you have moments where you just go, man, I just really want to be unselfish right now. You just go, where the heck did that come from? You know? <laughs> but that's kind of how it works, isn't it? And then you just, you go off and you go do it. You just go, man, this is really good. This is really good. And it's this faith that Jesus started on the cross stirring up in us good works. This uh, clip uh, was around uh, big time a couple, of, uh, a couple of years ago and the guy uses the term uh, religion but he's really talking about legalism so I'll, I'm just going to roll this and then um, I'll uh, close in prayer.
What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, he looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention, how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. Which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin, and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. That scripture he has at the end is, is a beautiful scripture. See, this is the Sabbath that you're invited to. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, is there a 
physical reality to the Sabbath that God would want you to have each week? Yeah, I think there is. But it's the physical reality that sits underneath the beautiful spiritual reality over the top. You don't have to work. So just stop working. Stop feeling like you've got to put a bit in to make it okay. And live in the expansive grace of God.